This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen. And I'm Gabriel Rossman. Today, our guest is Neil Gong from the University of Michigan. Neil recently published Between Tolerant Containment and Concerted Constraint, Managing Madness for the City and the Privileged Family in the American Sociological Review. Today, we discuss how society manages its mental health problems. Our discussion was recorded on November 25th, 2019. So we are here with Neil Gong from the University of Michigan, formerly of UCLA. Neil? Yeah, just just finished my PhD, graduated, uh, what, five months ago, something like that. Was was out yeah. there with Gabe until, uh, until pretty recently. Although I, I can't take any credit because uh, you were Stefan Timmerman's student and I wasn't on your committee or anything. We just knew yeah. each other passing in the hallway. Cool. I was always impressed that Gabe could pull out these random facts about ancient Rome uh, at yeah. all kinds of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's a true renaissance, man. Yeah, it's kind of my shtick. <laughs> <laughs> so today we uh, thought we'd at least begin by talking about uh, Neil's recent work in ASR on how uh, society manages the public health problem of mental illness. And maybe before we get into the two-tiered system that you talk about in your paper, can you set it up for the audience? Like, what's happened over the past several decades? How has society's system for dealing with mental health problems changed since, like, the mid-50s? Uh, can you can you just set it up for that first? Sure, sure. So in the mid-50s, we're thinking of the, the sort of classic total institution that, that Goffman does the ethnography of, the, the old school state hospital system where you have maybe up to around 600,000 people in these large scale institutions uh, segregated from society, sometimes long term. I mean, in some cases, shorter commitments, but, but often for years at a time. And then uh, the story most people know is of deinstitutionalization. Um, and this comes through a number of administrations, right? So we have Kennedy, uh, beginning of this, you have like a whole bunch. I mean, it's a very complex kind of causal process that people have argued about for a long time. What ends up driving this, whether this is about the advent of new psychiatric medications or it's about people like Goffman causing a stir with other muckraking journalists, or is it about, uh, as Andrew Skoll of, of UCSD has argued, pretty much just this is it's, it's about the fiscal crisis of the Western welfare state, to use that kind of mm -hmm. neo Marxist language, whatever it ends up being. It's no longer sustainable to hold people in these large-scale institutions. And so people start, start trickling out. Then all of a sudden, it's, it's quite rapid. And you have a full-scale turn, uh, also ideologically, towards the idea of community care. So people will be treated not in uh, locked facilities, often against their will, um, in these large-scale institutions, but the resources will be driven toward treating people, ideally, in their home communities, They'll have access to a center that they can go see outpatient psychiatrists, outpatient therapists. Uh, and the story, as we know, is this, this often didn't materialize. People blame this on, often on Reagan. I mean, but again, there's, there's a, a longer bipartisan history that, that, that drove this. Yeah. And then the other part of the story people often know now is that people were yeah, I, often so released to, in some cases, the streets. Or nowadays, quite often, you hear about the criminalization of serious mental illness. So people yeah. are languishing in jails on very petty crimes, crimes of poverty, and occasionally uh, longer in state prison. Yeah. Pr prisons are, are often the uh, largest mental health systems in a jails. lot of states. Jails. 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 Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, because we're talking usually about low-level offenses. So right. people who are 
you know, stealing something from 7-Eleven, public, you know, exposing themselves, acting bizarrely. Uh, and so maybe they're in and out of jail on a regular basis. But it's and certainly you have people who are in longer term prison sentences. But that when we talk about the largest, the new asylums, the largest mental health facilities, I mean, it's sort of a, a dubious contest usually between like, you know, Cook County, L.A. County. Is it L.A. County Twin Towers this time? Is it is it in Chicago? Is it in Florida? But it's usually we're talking about jails more than prisons. Mm-hmm. And just for the, the listeners benefit, I, I think we should clarify jails are for short term and generally for pretrial or misdemeanor, and prisons are for long-term and for felony sentences. So basically, a serious crime, you go to prison, and a relatively small crime, you go to jail. Do either of you have a sense of, like, in retrospect, how good or bad that old system of, you know, institutionalizing uh, people? Like, is it something in retrospect people are like, well, there were pluses and minuses, or was it an unmitigated disaster, and it's good that it's gone, but we just don't have a perfect system today? So I would say even even in the 70s and 80s, people were recognizing that in many cases, even crappy asylums were still serving a very important social welfare function. You know, you're talking about housing and feeding and organizing the days of half a million people uh, in the United States. And there were you know, some people on the left already in the 80s, Peter Sedgwick uh, in the UK, who was saying that, you know, yes, people like Goffman and Foucault have a point. But what you're really doing is you're is yeah you're going to be casting people off to the streets. People are already thinking the criminalization thing might happen, and this is sort of before everyone was using the buzzword of neoliberalism and blaming everything on on Thatcher and Reagan. Yeah. But some people on the left had already seen that coming. And then nowadays there's a little bit more. So like Joel Braslow, who's a psychiatrist and historian at UCLA, has has been talking about the fact that you know Goffman, of course, has his one case study. And he's making all of these sort of grand claims about how it's a, so basically a sociological law that if you create total institutions, they're going to devolve into these, into these kind of places that strip people of their identities, et cetera. Mm. Um, but there's actually a fair amount of, of variation in state hospitals. Um, and then, of course, you have distinctions between public and, and private places. Uh, and the, the total institution is not really monolithic, would be, I think, increasingly people okay. recognize that. Yeah. Huh. And, and I've been hearing lately, just in the last few years, a lot of criticism of that kind of like late middle 20th century social science that uh, criticized asylums or, you know, mental health treatment. So for one thing, it turns out Thomas Staz never actually met any crazy people. He arranged his career to never actually deal with psychotics, but to only deal with the kind of worried well. And so if you're a psychiatrist who's only dealing with the worried well, it's fairly easy to say that uh, mental illness is socially constructed and there's no such thing as schizophrenia. That's because he never met an actual schizophrenic. Because he right. arranged his career in such a way that he could avoid ever dealing with any actual crazy people. And then similarly, there's a book coming out by uh, Cahillan on the Rosenhan study, which is the one where a uh, Stanford researcher got him and some of his friends uh, institutionalized with a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia, uh, basically by presenting some symptoms, saying they heard voices or something like that, and then never doing anything crazy again. And then like apparently they like, you know, it they would have stayed there the rest of their lives and they would have never checked out. But it turns out that, and this is like one of the classic things of talking about like how asylums make you crazy. It's not that you're crazy uh. and you go to the asylum. It turns out that it was all bullshit. He like made it up. <laughs> A lot of that stuff seems made up. It was a yeah. really sketchy social science era. Yeah, you know, the, the replication crisis comes to ethnography finally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I would just want to throw in there that, um, 
I mean, there's also, I think, people who are still broadly social constructionists who are you know, skeptical of psychiatric science and the taxonomies that exist, who will still acknowledge that whatever, you know, whatever kind of ontological position you want to take about what we call madness or serious mental illness, like whether we see it as biological or some sort of altered spiritual experience, whatever it is, it, it can be profoundly disabling. And there was a sort of cavalier attitude that a lot of, uh, yeah, 70s, 80s social scientists took to it where, yeah, it's, it's one thing to challenge our conceptual frameworks about these phenomena, but it's, it's another to just sort of say, like, oh, there's, there's no problem here at all. No, no, that's right. And I mean, I, I don't like social constructionism when people take it to the extent of saying, oh, it's all fake. It's all made up. Yeah. That, that's a ridiculous and untenable position. But, you know, it's extremely compelling to say, you know, something is going on here, but maybe we're parsing it in somewhat arbitrary ways. Yeah. So what's the line between... You know, so something like autism, where, you know, on the one hand, you have people who 30 years ago, you would have said, uh, you know, so like low functioning, nonverbal autistics, 30 years ago, they would have been diagnosed with uh, severe mental retardation. Mm -hmm. Whereas, uh, if you take people who today we diagnose with Asperger's, even in like a casual way of saying like, oh, so-and-so is kind of Aspie or so-and-so is on the spectrum, right? you know, and you're not exactly sitting there with your copy of the DSM-5 open you know, doing the formal diagnosis, you know, 30 years ago, we would have just said, oh, he's a little awkward, you know, mm. and at what point does awkward become a mental illness? At what point does being kind of a, a downer become depression? Uh, you know, at what point, yeah. there's all these things where they're kind of spectrum disorders, Sure, um, but that doesn't mean people don't vary in their brain chemistry and whatnot. Yeah. And even in the case of, of auditory, like, you know, auditory stimuli that no one else notices, there's, there's increasing recognition that there are a lot of folks who occasionally hear voices or, or mm -hmm. see things and manage to do just fine. Um, there's mm. uh, Actually, today I have some folks coming in from a, a group called the Hearing Voices Network. They're coming to my sociology and mental health class. Can and anyone else see these people who are coming, Neil? <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. But they're, yeah, they're trying to toe this line with, uh, on the one hand, depathologizing some of these experiences, while at the same time not being so dismissive as to say, like, well, no, you don't need help. It's just that the help might not necessarily be psych drugs and psychiatrists. It might be about, yeah. in, some, in some cases, learning how to manage the voices better, because the meds aren't going to get rid of them anyway, a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. My, my father has done clinical psych work, and my understanding, as he's conveyed it to me, is that a trait becomes a disorder when it hinders the functioning of some major domain of life. So yeah. if you have a trait that gets you fired or makes it hard for you to get a job or to have a relationship or to maintain steady relations with your family, like some major domain, maintain your health, then it's considered a disorder. Yeah, well, and, and you could see you know, some of that is going to be intrinsic, right? It's, it's going to be relatively hard to function in life if, you know, like Neil was saying, some people manage to do it, yeah. but it's going to be relatively hard to function in life if you're perceiving sensory stimuli that simply aren't there. Yeah, I guess so. But, but there's other things where we could see it is more fully just a matter of how society treats it, right? So uh, 50 years ago, homosexuality could have been something that, you know, because it was so intensely stigmatized, uh, could have severely obstructed your life, kept you from keeping a job, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But, you know, now we, you know, see homosexuality as a completely benign personality difference. Right. And so it's not in any meaningful way considered a disorder. It's just, you know, it, we think of it almost like somebody has brown hair versus blonde hair. Like everybody else's change in behavior made 
homosexuality not something that would interfere in your job or your family life whereas yeah, exactly in past yeah. generations they would have ostracized you and created that context yeah where you... yeah and so and precisely what groups like hearing voices are doing is as far as i can tell like i said i've, I've communicated with them a little bit and i'll have a better sense after uh, after they come to my class this afternoon is viewing something like voice hearing more along the lines of the history of demedicalizing homosexuality uh when mm -hmm. they get to a point where because uh, it's destigmatized because there's better care infrastructure in place and there's more understanding about how to cope with voices besides just telling them to go away or trying to mm -hmm. you know, beat them back with medication that you may end up with. Yeah, um, it will no longer be disabling or a disorder in the same way because this is going to be relative to the kind of social environment it's in. I've actually had advisees with uh, severe mental illnesses. I had a schizophrenic advisee, but that uh, this is t pivoting to your piece, Neil. But, you know, he really had a very strong grasp of his mental state. And he had sort of the whereabouts to, when he first met me, say, listen, there might be times I drop off the grid. Are you the type of professor who could work with yeah. me if I reappear in six months? Like, I just, I pull off a of school when he says it come. it's like a mental version of a cold in my mind. Mm -hmm. I reorganize my life and I'm just looking for people to work with me. And, like, that's a very adaptive yeah. attitude, mm -hmm. even though he has... Uh, you know, an illness that I had assumed before would be absolutely crippling with the right type of, I guess, treatment or way of seeing it or something. He was able to, you know, finish college and he works. He's a nice guy. And I, I just maybe wanted to, to, to pivot towards that two-tiered study because it seems like some people are doing very, very well today compared to how they might have in the 1950s, but not everybody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of people for whom it, it's it's... You can clearly say that you know receiving their care in the community is way better than than what it would have been if in a in a sort of long term locked setting. We do have increasing research about people who are who uh, are diagnosed with psychotic disorders but do extremely well, like super high achievers. Um, yeah. Maybe the most famous one is is Ellen Sachs, who's a law professor at USC. One of the things you find often is the case with these people is that they come from families with money. Yeah. Because even when we're talking about the kind of the kind of coping strategies you've just described with your student, I mean these are things that people often have to learn, and so it might be from peers who have experienced similar things, or it might be from like clinical professionals. But you need one way or another access to people who can who can guide you through a lot of this. Otherwise, when people try to do this on their own, it's it's a very different situation than when you have access. Well, and also it just requires resources, right? Like the kind of situation yeah. Joe was describing. Is somebody saying, I'm going to take three months off from my, you know, primary economic activity. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you can't do that. Yeah. And it's also certainly the case if you're if you're living on like a disability income, if you're like on SSI. Um, yeah, you can't you can't sort of, OK, now I'm ready to work. I'm going to do this thing for a while. Then I'm going to drop yeah. back out because you lose your mm -hmm. benefits if you if you're like full time back in the in the labor force. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And I've heard that a lot. I mean, the, the big you know, so with welfare reform in the 90s, we made it much harder for people to get on kind of general relief. But the general relief programs were designed to be temporary, even if some people treated them as if they were permanent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from the uh, welfare state reduction perspective, that worked for a while. But, you know, gradually over time, we've seen more and more people end up on disability, even though work is much less physically strenuous than it used to be. Mm -hmm. And in practice, uh, disability is kind of serving as a general relief, but it has this perverse uh, property that Neil was describing, that it's much harder than general relief to 
it's like the opposite of unemployment insurance, right? Unemployment insurance, you kind of have to cycle in and out of it or they kick you off. Whereas uh, disability, if you cycle in and out of it, they don't let you back on. Hmm. And so it acts as more of a trap for uh, welfare state dependency and poverty than would something like unemployment insurance, which is designed to get you back into the labor market. Yeah. And then if if you have essentially that set up, but via your family, this is getting into some of the, the wealthier folks I got to know. If you're on the dole from your family and they have a nice incentive structure set up with like a clinic that's helping manage everything, yeah, you can go back to work and drop in and out as necessary. Mm. And your, your benefits aren't cut off in a sense because they're, they're benefits from, from your loved ones. Um, so you can, you can have this push and pull with, okay, now I can work, now I can't, without, yeah, without the kind of perverse incentives that you're talking about in. So, so maybe we should talk more about your research, right? Because you, 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 you did a contrast between uh, basically indigent mental health care, mostly on you know, the homeless or very near homeless or formerly homeless. So then what I think of, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think of it as like you know, Bojack style you know, you know, Malibu and, you know, uh, therapy uh, horses who aren't actually yeah, therapy horses. Yeah. Therapy yeah. horses who do therapy. Yeah. 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 Uh, to some degree that's, that's right. I, I, so a lot of those Malibu places are not necessarily mental health focused. Um, a lot of them are addiction focused, but increasingly will claim to do dual diagnosis services. But there's a lot of comorbidity of that, sure. right? Sure. Yeah. Um, but so, some of the main places I was focused on in West LA mostly, and to some degree in Malibu, are more focused on severe mental health. Mm-hmm. But yes, there is, there's definitely overlap with the addiction infrastructure. I mean, in part because with a lot of these private addiction places, there's really not a whole lot of monitoring. So anyone can just sort of open up a place and claim that they do mental health mm-hmm. as well. And so you, yeah, so you have the, yeah, the Bojack style, you know, 60 grand a month Malibu places, but also mm-hmm. the, the sober living homes. And this is another... Uh, another big piece. It's usually people who have, uh, who are like in recovery themselves, and they'll just start a, they'll just start a house. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you know, and you have the poor person's version. Um, and then you have the rich person's version, which will be like, you know, 5,000 plus a month to live there mm-hmm. with with supervision. So it's like fancy halfway houses. Yeah. And it seems like in the addiction industry, almost everyone who works in it is a recovering addict themselves. Yes. Yes. It's often the case. So wait, what's the poor person's version again? I always imagine the poor person's version to be like your parents' or your children's basement. Oh, oh, so, oh yeah. So the poor person's version, at least in, in the study I'm focused on, is is looking at these uh, intensive community case management teams. Mm. So there's a longer history of these, like that starts with the deinstitutionalization uh, moment we, we were talking about a little while ago. Uh, they started in Wisconsin. And the idea is creating what they call hospitals without walls. Um, so you would bring out into the community social workers, doctor, psychologist, nurse. Uh, and they would visit people um, and so bring the services of the hospital out into the community. And what that's, over time, what that's come to mean, given the poor state of the public mental health infrastructure and the, and the, the fact that so many folks are in and out of jail and homeless, uh, is that these treatment teams are often focused on housing. And so like the California, mental, California State Mental Health Services Act of the early 2000s funded a bunch of these teams, and they are specifically designed to outreach people who... Yeah, have a, a, a you know either uh, have a history of homelessness, incarceration, or or in and out of psych hospitals. So it's focused on, uh, as Gabe was saying, this this indigent patient, ex-patient population. And so, the, the, so I, I should set up the contrast, I suppose, between yeah that kind of team and then the the whole ecology of services there. So the ecology, and then so you know, I'll contrast that with 
the, the private sector case management and the ecology of services in, in that world. So in the mm-hmm. public sector, uh, case management teams, intensive treatment teams we're talking about, uh, often outreaching people on the streets, in some cases getting them from uh, psych hospitals um, or, or referred through, yeah, through jail referrals. And you're helping people move into either what are called board and care homes, which were another thing that sprung up after deinstitutionalization. They're essentially psychiatric flop houses that will take someone's whole SSI check um, and give them, you know, three hot meals and a cot. Mm -hmm. Or for people who are on the street, uh, increasingly getting them into their own apartments. Mm -hmm. That's the housing first policy that's been big since uh, George W. Bush, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Hmm. So the idea is that you would get some folks directly from the street into their own apartments where there is no longer a, an expectation of sobriety or psychiatric compliance. Uh, they call it housing first because the housing comes first and then treatment on a voluntary basis comes afterward. Mm. Um, so that's what you would see on, on that side. So like board and care homes, these kind of psychiatric flop houses, uh, in some cases getting people in their own apartments. And then in this other whole world of mental health care for those with, with money, you have, uh, as we mentioned, yeah, the Malibu kind of rehab, some of which deal more with purely addiction and others that do both uh, mental illness and chemical addiction. You have these kinds of very fancy sober living homes or transitional homes for people coming out of the psych hospital, you know, and a whole host of other things that are sort of peripherally related. So for younger folks, you know, these outward bound type, type adventure camps uh, where yeah. you, you send someone to get away from the city, you know, for two months out in the woods where they learn some discipline. And I remember those were controversial in the 90s. There were a few cases of like kids dying of dehydration or heat exhaustion or whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's been yeah, there's been a couple of exposés of those types of places. Yeah, with you know these kids being quite severely traumatized or yeah, or in some cases actually dying. And then the uh, what did I say? Oh, then I was focused on one case management team in West LA that served uh, wealthier clientele and they were great because they they helped introduce me to other other pl- key players throughout that whole scene of, of different kinds of high end private agencies. Mm. So can you sort of flesh out for us like what in essence is the problem with you know this this new system this two tiered system what social ills does it produce that you can discern? Sure. So I mean the setup for the article is understanding how authorities govern serious mental illness or madness uh, when people have the right to refuse care, oh, okay. uh, to otherwise make choices. So this is, again, uh, a departure from this older, highly paternalistic kind of model to one in which not only are people legally empowered, uh, because there's been you know, a strong civil libertarian, civil libertarian turn, especially in places like California, mm-hmm. where people can choose, refuse, or dictate their care. Right. There's also a, a real normative commitment to giving people choices. And this is, you know, I think in a, in a longer historical context, quite fascinating, because you have Classic, for classical liberal thinkers, you have, you know, for people like John Locke, uh, you could empower everyone except mad people. So for him, you know, it's like you could even give brown people and women freedom after you taught them how. Mm-hmm. But people who were crazy, those are the people who don't get freedom. And then what you have after deinstitutionalization and the civil libertarian turn in mental health law uh, are situations where people are empowered to make choices, even if someone in authority has decided that they're crazy. Mm. And... As we've discussed, like in, on this, uh, in some cases, people do very well. In other cases, yeah, you have the, the folks who are going in and out of the psych hospital, in and out of jail, intermittently on the streets. And then the question becomes, yeah, how, how do you manage 
people when you no longer have the heavy-handed kind of paternalistic treatment approach where you can also just invoke the law <laughs> and make people do what you want. And so in that sense, I also see it as like a pretty interesting case for understanding how power works in, in liberal societies. Yeah, that, that's, that was the theory hook I found so compelling about the article. I mean, uh, there's the substantive issue in that you're dealing with a huge problem, right? You know, you lived in LA until recently, I still live in LA, and you cannot you know, go through life in LA without seeing how ubiquitous this is. And in part, that's because we constrain our housing supply and that drives up rent. But in part, it's because, you know, we have a lot of people who are psychotic and or on meth or opiates and completely dysfunctional in a very visible way. And, you know, I live in a, an okay neighborhood, but I see it all over the place in my neighborhood. And then I go to, um, I have to drive through Skid Row once a week and it's like something, you know, like unimaginable, you know, but the theory hook is what really sold me on the article where, I mean, I see your article, like what's compelling, obviously there's a lot in it, but what's really compelling to me about it is you're dealing with this question of power and agency and autonomy. And like, are we best off if we are allowed to be left alone, mm. you know, and, you know, the, the kind of civil libertarian critique, and this comes from Foucault, and it's this weird like horseshoe type thing of there's this very strong notion that we are all autonomous agents whose autonomy should be respected and coercion is a bad thing. And, you know, the, what I read your argument is, is that that's actually what we do for the indigent, mm. right? Mm. That like highly, extremely poor people, we allow them autonomy, but we don't put up with that for rich people. Like rich people aren't given the inferior good of autonomy they're given coercion if coercion is what's in their best long-term interests. Yeah, that's a good characterization. Although I would I would dispute the word coercion because again we're talking about situations where, you know, we're, we're not talking about when people are necessarily getting fifty-one fifty all the time. So that sure. is like a, a seventy-two hour hold in California welfare institutions code lingo. It's often at that at the point before that, which is precisely the people who are who are arguably mad but not passing those thresholds where they become mm -hmm. a danger to self or others, um, and people want them to maybe do certain things, but it's only intermittently uh, on occasion that the force of the law will be invoked. So you have to come up mm -hmm. with these alternative ways of managing behavior. And so I think of it as what wealthy folks can invest in is creating much more sophisticated choice architectures, mm -hmm. to use the sort of behavioral economist language. So if we can't force you to do things, how do we set it up so that you make the right choices on your own? And so it's a much more subtle form of, of governing behavior than just locking people up or coercing them in one way or another. Yeah, yeah. we're not going to call someone with a gun to make you do this, but we are going to define our own behavior as enabling. If we don't structure our behavior in such ways to incentivize you, the crazy slash addict person, to behave. Yes. I mean, that works well in some circumstances, although you could imagine like it ultimately being very detrimental because like, I bet your poor kids didn't get gay conversion therapy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's a choice architecture and you can, a person can be coerced by a family member more easily when like uh, the gay conversion therapy is the sort of. Well, the, this is the, the basic issue of like power, right? I mean, whether yeah. you see power as a good thing or a bad thing partly depends on whether you think the power is exercised responsibly or not. Yeah. Right. So if, if power is exercised to say, you know, you really got to finish your GED and stay off meth, mm. you know, th those are sympathetic goals. And so we might like power to be exercised in those ways where, you know, if we think power is directed in an a, towards an end that is futile and or restricting completely benign behavior, 
then you know we might be much more skeptical of power. So what's the situation now with poor? Is it like when I was reading your paper, I had this vision. You remember in The Wire, how mm-hmm. they decide there's going to be like a little part of town where yeah, you yeah. can all the crimes you yeah. 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 Is yeah. that Well, actually before you uh before you uh reply to that, I want to you already answered that. And so I want to read my favorite uh sentence from your article. Okay. Uh, elements may appear in such cases as safe injection sites, decriminalization, penal diversion programs without substantive treatment, sanctioned homeless encampments, universal basic income, or any situation where it becomes cheaper or politically expedient to accept or redefine previously problematic behavior. You know, and that's your definition of tolerant containment. Ah, yes. Yeah, so uh, I should say that that right. So that's like I think like in a, an emerging strategy that certainly coexists with with other things we know a lot about, right? We also know that poor folks who are engaged in ostensibly deviant behaviors are, are routinely criminalized and are tightly regulated and punished. And I would make a distinction like not not really disciplined in the sense of surveillance and micro transformations of behavior, but punished. At the same time, that does coexist with with uh, as you've just read off. Like what I see is this is this broader shift towards tolerant containment. And so, what it means there in the article with the specific empirical case is getting people off the streets so that they're not creating trouble in public, but then tolerating whatever kinds of behavior that you sort of assume you can't change. So, yeah, and and it's in many ways it's a lot of the kinds of progressive public health and mental health interventions that I'm a proponent of. Things like yeah needle exchanges, mm-hmm. uh, empowering people in a more voluntary approach to psych meds, things like this. But in the context of uh, you know, um, totally inadequate funding and staffing, what that often does look like is just putting people in a place and letting them, in some cases, destroy themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like Sally Sattel at AEI, she's actually an addiction medicine specialist who works at a methadone clinic. And she likes to make the point that methadone done right is it's designed to kind of gradually wean you off of your opiate addiction. And so they give you a little bit less methadone than you need. Mm. And if um, this occurs in concert with intensive outpatient rehab, it can actually work to get people off of opiates and not have them be stuck on methadone for the rest of their life. But in practice, they just sell you the methadone and they don't give you the intensive outpatient. Mm. And so Mm -hmm. you stay on the methadone, but you're still a little bit junk sick. And so drug dealers know to hang out outside of methadone clinics and sell you fentanyl, and then you have a drug overdose, or at least you're, yeah. you know, or, or an abscess, or you know, some other, uh, you know, it kind of maintains you as a junkie rather than, you know, it, so it's like this weird thing where it's like some things can be curative, but if you do with them half-ass, yeah. it really just kind of maintains people in a horrible lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair characterization of of what unfortunately happens, even with the best of intentions, with a lot of, uh, again, ostensibly progressive public health interventions, and even, you know, which you also can imagine, right, is like with so many things, when they're initially piloted and researched with heavy mm-hmm. funding behind them, they can be done in one way. Uh, and then when you start talking about, okay, grants have expired, you're not getting as much state funding. I mean, this really can just yeah. devolve into, yeah, uh, helping people maintain at a very, uh, at a low level. Um, and in some cases, like I, I described in the article, where there's just sort of this understanding that, you're not going to be able to help people much beyond that. And given the direness of, say, like the homelessness crisis in L.A., what you're often talking about is, yeah, you're just getting people off the street. It's sort of housing first and housing last is, is the way some yeah. people talk about it. Uh, the, the other services don't quite follow um, because there's just no capacity. So I, I already read my favorite you know, take-home punchline. 
But uh, my favorite story from the book that I think really illustrates it for people who haven't read the article is you tell a story about a woman who was put in an apartment as like a housing first type thing. And she's banging her head against the wall all day because she's having a psychotic episode. And it's bothering the neighbors that she's banging her head against the wall. And, and this actually is a big issue in homeless services is that, you know, um, homeless people often refuse shelter because they don't like being in close quarters with other homeless people. And anyway, so she's banging her head against the wall and they they basically say, well, the caseworker comes down and says, well, could you bang your head against the wall with the window? So at least it's not bothering your neighbor, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that was, uh, yeah, exactly. I think that's that's like a, a perfect example of this kind of tolerant containment. Uh, and it's it's nothing, I don't think it's necessarily like anything negative on the part of the, the caseworkers. It's like the best they can come up with in the moment, yeah. right? They're, they're problem solving practically. Well, if you're annoying that neighbor and that's the risk of eviction, bang your head out to this other wall. And the, the truth is that, what, as I described in the article, what ends up happening anyway is the building manager is still trying to find ways to evict this woman. And so what ends up happening eventually is they have to move her to a different apartment that's closer to downtown. Mm -hmm. um, they had managed to get her into a unit in a nicer building outside of the social service ghetto. But mm -hmm. you know, her, her behavior was tolerated up to a point, and then you have to move her back to an ecology, which is sort of set up for this kind of tolerant containment in a way that mm. uh, you know, these buildings outside are, are often not. That's interesting, too, because... You know, one of the issues with mental hospitals is it meant that you had a captive audience, so people weren't missing their their appointments or or missing their doses. Whereas, like my understanding is that with outpatient, it's very hard to get people to show up for their appointments, partly because they're not fully competent, and partly because they just face logistical constraints. That you know, unless the appointment is you know walking distance, they're going to find it difficult to get there. You know, because most of them don't have cars or you know, can't necessarily manage the bus schedule or whatever reliably. Mm. Or as uh, I think Chris Herring would point out, they can't leave their tent unattended or the city will toss it out. But, you know, to a lesser extent, this is true of if you're, there's almost like network externalities, severe poverty, where, you know, if you're in a, like you called it a services ghetto, where you have a bunch of homeless people, and then you have a bunch of homeless services nearby, it's feasible for them to reach them. And so it's kind of the opposite of what we usually think of as like economic segregation, right? So if we were thinking of things from like an economic segregation perspective, you'd say, oh, we really want to like, you know, break up housing projects and replace them with Section 8 vouchers so that we can spread people out so they're closer to jobs and they don't have, you know, the, the spillovers of concentrated poverty, et cetera. But at least at the extreme end of, super con of uh, severe poverty, it, it sounds like there's actually network externalities that you know you can easily meet with your caseworker and with your psychiatrist and go to the soup kitchen because they're all within four blocks of each other, right? Sure, they're all sure. south of fourth and yeah. north of eighth on San Pedro. Yeah, that's exactly right. So with the origins of Housing First in New York in the '90s, uh, with this group Pathways to Housing, I, I actually used to work for them a while ago. My first job out of college. Uh, the big emphasis was on what they called scattered site housing. And the idea was that you didn't want to ghettoize people in buildings that were just full of you know, formerly homeless psychiatric patients. Uh, and you yeah. wanted to normalize people by having them interact with neighbors from you know, a different walk of life. And as they've tried to implement this and scale this in different cities, it's, it's often proven to just be uh, not really feasible. Um, it is, it's so much easier, uh, as, you're, as, you're, as you're mentioning, to just have every, especially if you don't have the kind of staffing, uh, is to just have everyone in one place. Otherwise, what you're dealing with is having to send case managers. Uh, I mean, this was actually like half of the field work I was doing was sitting in cars with case managers, driving mm -hmm. to some other part of the city where someone was housed 
to do, you know, a 20 minute visit and then driving back to, to see the next person. So there's still an argument people make, right, that, that the ideal is something like scattered site housing so that you can better integrate people into, quote unquote, normal communities rather than, mm-hmm. than these kinds of ghettoized service housing. But yeah, without the kind of staffing and resources, it's, it's usually not feasible. Yeah. So it's like, it sounds like there is an upside to scattered site, but it's so much more resource intensive that it's also more expensive. Yeah. So like a bang for the buck with finite resources and an expanding, you know, in need population, you know, there's a kind of a perverse incentive towards, you know, super concentrated hyper poverty. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's an argument people have made too, that, you know, people do better living in group housing with other folks who've had shared experiences. It's less alienating than going into a neighborhood where you're the only one, things like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it also depends, and this is sort of a bigger point of the article, on, on what your goal is with rehabilitating people, um, if that's even the goal. Yeah. So if, if you have this sort of long-range goal of people are going to become increasingly independent, uh, maybe still on SSI, but doing more things in the world, integrated into a community that's not, again, in a, in a, in a service ghetto, then you're going to have to take a bunch of steps that you don't have to take if your sense is, well, this person really can't be recovered in some sense. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it will be cheapest and easiest for us to keep them in this smaller space with other people like them. And then just in terms of scale, yeah, we can can just go up and down through the building. And and you actually saw that in your ethnography on the other end with the BoJack or at least BoJack adjacent type treatment, where you tell some stories about people who are, you know, working at Target and it's basically costing their family twice as much as they make to keep them at that level where they can work at Target. And so, you know, in purely, uh, you know, utilitarian, you know, bean counting sense, it'd be better just to warehouse them. But, you know, there's a sense in which working at Target is human flourishing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whereas just living in the state mental hospital or even a private mental hospital is not. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah, it gets back to this question of what is the goal of treatment? Is the goal to salvage a functioning self, or is it just to get people out of the way? Mm-hmm. And if the goal is to salvage yourself, to help people yeah, flourish even, then you have to take these very different kinds of steps. Like, yeah, getting people employed. And the meaning of work is totally different, right? If the meaning of work is it's something you sustain yourself with economically, or it's giving you something to do uh, so that you feel meaningful as a human being. And also, I think for a lot of folks... In this, in this sector, right? They're coming from fairly successful families and you are most definitely the black sheep. Mm-hmm. And so like one of the things that some of the clinics I was at, uh, they talked about were, I mean, these were questions, excuse me, these were problems that the folks in the homeless settings didn't have to deal with in the same way, which is, you know, what do you say to relatives like when you go to a wedding? You had to learn scripts for what have, what have you been doing for the last two years so that you don't have to lie to people, but you also don't have to feel embarrassed about it. It's just a different set of circumstances and and goals about what you're trying to do with a person and what that person is supposed to be, uh, again, from uh, whether versus just, uh, yeah, holding them in the services ghetto and they're not making trouble. You've been listening to the Annex of Sociology podcast. Special thank you to Neil Gong from the University of Michigan. Neil recently published Between Tolerant Containment and Concerted Constraint, Managing Madness for the City and the Privileged Family, in the American Sociological Review. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter, at Sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Liseth Moreno, music by Lena Orsa. On behalf of Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>